and good day to you. Thanks for tuning in to the Learning Experience Lab. I'm your host, Dan Hassan, and I've been talking to the heroes of education and technology for over a year to harvest, prepare, and showcase the bountiful fruits of innovation collected from higher education faculty all over the world. I started doing that with Feedback Fruits a year ago in written documents, but now have this incredible opportunity to present in audio format, going even deeper into the experiences and insights from educators and instructional designers to share with you what I'm learning. And this episode, we have quite the feast on the table with my first recorded conversation with an instructional designer, faculty development trainer, and all-round teaching and learning innovator, John McCormick from Brandeis University. Before we jump into our chat about the foundational context and concepts in instructional design, as well as some of the challenges of domain-specific feedback and solid course design, a quick personal note. Last Friday, I just finished writing my design thesis about augmented reality tech and informal education at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. I worked with a five-person team to design and develop an educational product aimed at youngsters to help them learn about proteins, making the link to human health and nutrition. We aim to both increase familiarity and spike wider participation in this area of biomolecular science, which generally hasn't been a focus at this level and age group from what we could see. After all, invisible enzymes and bodily processes don't have the pop culture allure of dinosaurs, outer space, and other domains well known in the popular sphere. We didn't want to just design something that, from a scientist's perspective, we found cool and interesting and expect a wide target audience to share our enthusiasm. So we thought about how to make the content fun and approachable rather than far and distant. We did this through the caricatured anthropomorphized representations of proteins as miniature superheroes carrying out tasks in the body and a carefully designed smartphone app which gamifies some of these functions in an interactive AR environment. We drew inspiration from the website Amoeba Sisters whose depictions of biomolecules with faces, emotions and personalities we were really impressed with as a way to reach that wider audience. With our increased awareness of microbiology and human health, this project seemed like a good way to increase early exposure in the school starter demographic, to hopefully equip them with some of the knowledge needed to better understand things like macro and micronutrition, viruses and vaccines later on in life. This project was commissioned by the European Proteomics Infrastructure Consortium providing access a network of access providers and researchers with no more initial guidance than teach kids something about proteomics. And I'm very glad to see how far we were able to get together with that idea. I'm really eager to find out just where extended reality will be where I'm older, especially with regards to education. And I hope I contributed something towards the understanding of the possibilities and limitations in this field. The effective end of this the desired outcome is a more inclusive and accessible education where different modalities are represented, different avenues of learning are possible, and different assessment and qualifications are offered. As people very close to me have special education needs and we could all do with a good look at how we learn, I really hope to see good pedagogy driving technology forward in the future. What that way will look like, we're still finding out. But for now, let's keep the conversation going. And lastly, thank you to the ones who made possible my journey through education so far, helped me through 15 months of that thesis, and provided me with this current platform to speak. And now, back to the other sort of technology in education with our conversation with John. So thanks for coming to talk to us. Firstly, a bit about yourself, 
what's your current position at Brandeis and how did you end up there? Thanks for having me, Dan. Glad to be here. So my current position at Brandeis is Associate Director of Learning Design. Um, until recently, we were a small team within a professional school, highly technical content like robotic software engineering and analytics. And we were just recently, about six weeks ago, moved into the library to centralize our services. And I think they'll be expanding this team. They have a few temporary Right now, they're instructional technologists, um, but they'll, they might uh, have them on our team and uh, expand because the campus as a whole is a face-to-face -face campus. It didn't have any instructional design or really instructional technology support uh, prior to that. Um, I moved to Brandeis during COVID. I haven't actually worked on the campus yet. This is since June. Uh, previous to that, I worked at Lesley University. And I worked in these kinds of teams from anywhere from four to 12 people in small to medium size uh, colleges uh, in this region, the Boston area. So for about the past 17 years. So um, how would you describe the field generally as a, a learning design professional, as a um, faculty development professional? or? Uh, the field, it's its interesting. It's ac uh, instructional design, learning design, and academia, I think, is a really different animal than outside of academia. Um, there's, so, there's certainly a lot of um, commonalities, but um, I, I noticed recently that the last two or three years, I've seen some research papers talking about, you know, how do instructional design and learning designers work in academia? But there's not much out there on that. And I wonder, you know, there, there are some significant differences. I, I remember recently thinking and seeing a podcast uh, where I think it was Marisham Nealon. Is it her talking about? No, I'm sorry. It was uh, Darby Flower from the United States speaking on a podcast. I think it was called UDL, some UDL podcast. But in any case, um, she said, you know, backwards design is doesn't really necessarily work for faculty development especially during remote learning um What's this sort of design so this um if it's the idea well in europe it's probably called constructive alignment but i think the way that you talk about it is maybe less in lockstep than let's say some designers might follow it right that the idea that you're going to start with learning objectives and goals of the course mm -hmm and follow that you know, directly backwards. It just isn't, I've, I've found throughout my career, it doesn't really always resonate with faculty. It's kind of hard. And in fact, even myself when I'm designing, I don't, I don't, I, I do more of a sort of a circle around the three parts of the alignment, you know. Um, so I think in a field that's in flux, right? Um, there have been some recent mm -hmm. um, books on it, trying to, I can't think of the names offhand, but um, talking about all the influences on instructional design, learning design where learning design came from, which I think was your area of the world uh, around 2000s, and that it integrates a lot of different fields. So it's an exciting time and it's interesting, you know, design for user experience, uh, human computer interaction, those kinds of fields uh, have influence on it. So there's design side, the learning science side coming from cognitive mm -hmm. psychology, um, which I think is something that you know, the learning science has been ignored and re recently it seems to be, be discussed more that the importance of it, that we're really, campuses, you know, higher ed needs to have more of this understanding of learning science as a stock and trade, right? Many more people should be many more, uh, have much more um, knowledge about that to be able to teach. So you um, mentioned instructional design and academia as a subset almost and you'll have to forgive me because I'm a total newbie to instructional design. Mm -hmm. This is my first encounter with it in, in this, my first job. And for me, it's um, difficult to see how instructional design 
exist outside of academia or outside of pedagogy, shall we say. So what are some of the other places instructional designers use, if not um, in academia? Uh, yeah. So, and, I, and I don't want to give a history of design, but, you know, it started in the military during World War II, my understanding, mm. in the United States, to do things like teach millions of soldiers how to put a rifle together, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and where else it's used? I mean, the the, the probably maybe some of the most sophisticated use of instructional design is, is still in the military where they're doing things like using sophisticated cognitive task analysis to figure out how fighter how good fighter pilots learn how to be good fighter pilots because things like that are so important or you know let's say airplane pilots those things are important because you know life is on the line and the same thing maybe in surgery and that sort of thing um, those kind of efforts are made but it's used everywhere you know it's used in organizations Nonprofit organizations is used in um, corporations and uh, academia was probably a little bit later to the field. But I think because of that, you don't see a lot of study around how is design best done or you can call it instructional design or it's maybe a subset of learning design in some people's minds. Right. Mm. Uh, and I think the move to uh, to learning design was was motivated by trying to have more of a focus on the learner, right? And analyzing the learner's experience, empathizing with their experience, collecting data about them, you know, doing some of that upfront analysis around the learner where instructional design was at least assumed to be focusing too much on the teacher or the instruction itself. Indeed, I can definitely see a parallel there with some of the things I've studied in my um, communication, uh, science communication course, which was, yeah, looking at this change in trend and the, the progressive innovation from the teacher as an expert to the teacher as a coach, uh, the focus on the teaching and the transmission to more of the the transaction model of communication and how the yeah as you said the learner and the learning process starts. Yeah, and I think focus. COVID's helped with that, right? To some degree, like the idea that faculty, especially at a research one institution like the one that I work at, um, are thinking about you know, if they understood how people learn, it would be easier to move them towards a more, let's say, interactive teaching kind of uh, style that fits with a learning design, um, you know, view. Um, but really, I think there's a huge gap in just understanding how people learn, understanding the learning science behind that, and then how that might guide your teaching. But I think COVID's kind of opened up that idea of focusing on the learner, if only because of the empathy and the challenge that everyone's had, right, with the remote learning. Yeah, I definitely see that. And I wanted to talk about uh, the universal elements of uh, good learning design. But uh, let's be more specific too in academia and pedagogy. Could you talk about maybe a specific area of learning design? I think you've been working with feedback protocols and formative feedback. Would you yeah. be able to tell us a bit more about the place of that? Yeah. Um, feedback's a challenge. You know, I first got involved because when I was um, like deeply involved, when I was designing online courses at Lesley University, um, I just, I'm always reading the research literature and I came to this sort of general practical strategy that I thought, well, a lot of faculty will do this because it doesn't add more time to their work, at least this one technique. So the, that's how I started. And that was probably six, seven years ago. And the technique was basically mm -hmm. just the idea that the, the, the learner or the student needs to be in a more proactive mode. So, and, and we do this at work, right? So if we, if we kind of follow the good feedback practice we might do as a professional, like if you want help from someone on your article, if you're writing or your blog or your podcast, you might say, hey, here's my plan or here's a draft. What do you think about it? And you might say, here's what I'm worried about. Here's what I'm concerned about. You might guide that, right? Just naturally. You say, well, 
could you take a look at this is this is my main concern where I'm a little weak here so you'd guide the feedback in that way and then so I uh, that was what's being suggested in the literature that I was reading and I would suggest to faculty that if they have and this is a big challenge in in any course face-to-face -face or online if you have the opportunity for students to do work on a draft a partial piece of work right not a final thing that's being graded, then this could happen. So if the, in those cases, which were pretty frequent at Leslie at least, I'd say, you know, if you could do this step where you ask students what their goals are, what their concerns are, so have them be proactive, you know. And then um, the other two steps were the student might be, uh, you know, if there's a peer reviewing it, right, it could be different, but it could be the same if a faculty were reviewing it. So it doesn't necessarily have to have a peer, but whoever's reviewing it uses a set of criteria, right? A rubric, some kind of guidance that talks about quality and shares an understanding of quality. But then finally, in this step, these, this first step I mentioned earlier, and then the last step I'll mention next, doesn't take more faculty time. In fact, it probably saves them time by kind of revealing more about the learner's journey through their work, is you ask the student to write something brief on their final draft that talks about what feedback they found useful and how it improved their work. And that kind of closes the loop, right? So it makes the student, it forces them to reflect on how they use the feedback, on the process of feedback, which is really what feedback should be about, the process, uh, and then how they use it to improve their work, right? But it also lets the instructor know, did they recognize good feedback? Were they able to use it? I mean, it gives them a lot of, fills in the gaps on a lot of things that happen when the instructor isn't necessarily there. And it isn't more work for them. So I used to try to sell that to every single faculty member I'd work with in an online course, which was my job. And that's how it started. And then after that, I became involved with, I think it was five faculty members who already had a group who were trying to improve their mostly face-to-face -face at the time, but some online um, student feedback, peer review processes in their courses. And we did that for five years. We went to a lot of regional conferences in New England and presented on that, wrote a few, maybe a paper, uh, did a lot of presentations. And so I brought that all to Brandeis and you know, I'm in a new um, place now, but I should stop talking. I have some a lot to say about it, but I want to hear your questions. I'm thinking about learners' self-regulation, about yep. Uh, also, my question, I guess, right away is, when is it too much feedback? Or when is the process too packed? Because you did mention it's not too much more work for the, for the instructors, for the instructional designers to incorporate these. But I can imagine if there's an activity with a, a pre-reflection or pre-flexion step, a, um, a peer evaluation, a reflection, an end evaluation, an evaluation on um, not just the final delivery, but also yeah. the feedback process. I think some students will find that a little bit too much, and certainly some people I've talked to don't like to be too caught up in the reflection and the evaluation of the process, but prefer to, quote, do the work itself, and that seems to be more important for them. And also considering some of the different the different cultural approaches to learning, where some pedagogy, some didactics are focused more on the memorizing material, on the, um, yeah, remembering key knowledge and skills rather than stepping back and looking at the process, looking at a collaborative or a, uh, an evaluative activity. Yeah, I think I take your point. I mean, I think part of this, and I think it's uh, the Australians who started talking about this, the reflective piece, if you zoom out the furthest, becomes maybe the skill what they that they call evaluative judgment, right? Like the idea that students should be able to evaluate their own and others' work, and the end 
reason for that, uh, the most important reason is they're going to go out in the world and they will not have anyone to help them judge whether the work is good enough. And uh, when I think it was David Bode uh, from uh, from Australia, he's one of these researchers, said in a, in a video I was watching, I have this in my course for faculty professional development, said, you know, they might only find out when they when they get fired if they, if they don't know how to judge their own work. But that would be the ultimate reflective, like positive, right? But I think the thing about it's peer review and feedback, right, especially peer review, is, is pretty complicated. I think that's one of the problems. Um, like what you said about what's too much, what's enough. There are all these different ways of designing feedback processes, right? And it really depends on so many things, including the content, the subject matter, the task. So there's not one right answer. I think that three-step protocol I gave was kind of a general thing. But, you know, if you work with people who teach artists the way they do critique, which is a long-standing practice in their field, well, what they're doing, I guess it works, but they could benefit by learning some of the research and figure out how to do it better. Um, I mean, some of the social emotional challenges around the way art students get critiqued is pretty vicious, right? It can be pretty, I mean, well, honestly, they had music, a They're a much more personal and yeah, emotional, creative, individual experience than, for example, writing a, a, a theoretical research paper on on an academic subject when you're making yeah. art when you're making music it's uh, really a, like a little bit of your soul going into uh, what you're producing but it is complicated i think the gap in the research now from what i understand currently is subject specific feedback and peer review practices right how is it different and i've run into some really bright and thoughtful instructors at brandeis even recently in the last week who when I bring up specifics of feedback practices in the context of the conversation we're having, they present some challenges from their content area that, you know, I don't always have the answer for. So there's still much to be learned, right? Do you have some examples there? Well, in the area, I don't have a specific example, except in the area of things like computer science, or I'm working with a faculty member who's teaching, he's a graduate student, but he's taught this face-to-face -face quite a bit, um, symbolic logic. And, you know, we get to these areas where he's, he tells me, you know, I'm not sure that there are, there is a way to do a rubric or a way to give them criteria, you know, and, and it's something where I'm not sure, like, so I'll often have to go and try to research a little bit, understand the content much better than I do. Uh, my first step is usually, is there any research showing how this is taught, this particular area? So I think that's what's missing, but there's so much and it's, it's, it can be complicated and, um, it's it's a it's a heavy lift. I think one of the biggest problems, if you don't mind me mentioning this, is if the course is not designed to allow for formative feedback, like there is no draft work, there is no you know project that's broken up into steps so they can get some feed, then you can't do it, right? You can't do that kind of uh, peer review, that kind of formative feedback. It's just a non-starter, and that is not an easy lift to make someone change their teaching to include that. So that's where I think it's a very developmental process for teachers as well as students. I really think times are changing, but even in my own very recent experience, I've been in courses which don't allow for specific or explicit formative exercises. For example, without going too much into detail, we had a weekly assignment in one course where we would receive comments on how we'd approach the text and we'd write some questions about it. And then we had to do this for eight weeks of the course and whichever was the lowest of the, our grades for the assignment weeks, then that would be taken off. And that was the closest it got to a formative uh, exercise where yeah. the worst thing you did wouldn't be counted 
and you would receive comments, but not necessarily where you can improve or, or what could go better, just how did this work go without looking forward, without having some kind of reflection. And I mentioned to the teacher in the course evaluation, I didn't feel like I had a chance to, to learn or to grow here, apart from reading the materials. Uh, I have to mention it was a course outside my domain. It was an elective. So I was a little bit unfamiliar with the content in the first place. But especially as an outsider student, I felt like I needed a bit more guidance and a bit more of a chance for that formative growth. You know, I think there's, it'd be fun to talk about this, but I think there's some de definite legitimate challenges that instructors have, especially with large classes, right? I mean, while it would be really helpful for them to learn even a little bit about all this research and some of the just practical uh, steps and some of the tools, frankly, like, you know, the set of tools that you have, um, which can uh, help leverage some of the scaling up, right, and some of the logistical problems you have without software. But uh, the legitimate part is that feedback, you know, if you talking about feedback or peer review, right? It's a lot of work either giving substantive feedback on draft work throughout a course is a lot for the faculty. To leverage the peer review is a lot of work just to learn how to do it, right? And also convince the students and yourself like of the value of this, right? And it's developmental. I think it's best done across a program, not in a single class. That way, the students are learning how to get better at it. And for each sub uh, subsequent class, those instructors don't have to be as skilled because their students know how to do it better and better. Not, notwithstanding, right, there's a content connection to it, right? It's not just a skill that's devoid of content, right? But still, some of it, there is some carryover in just the knowing how the practice would be in any domain, like the, the commonalities around feedback. As we said at work, right? Like I should guide the feedback I'm getting if I can a little bit. Even if it's to an instructor, like, I, you know, instructor meets with a student around a work, a, a paper, let's say, this instructor might say, well, you know, what are you confused by? What do you feel about your work? You know, I, trying to figure out where the student is in their head. Uh, it seems like that's pretty common. But hmm. And if I think about a, a degree program of X number of years split into however many courses, it doesn't seem like I can think of personally, any example of where there is a, a program-wide or a degree-wide critical thinking skills uh, feedback moment, apart from the closest I can imagine is uh, sometimes you have a tutor or a mentor who periodically will ask you, how are you doing and how are you finding things? And without that in place, and that's definitely not always in place, um, yeah. what is the the growth, the, the trajectory of, of the learner over that course, uh, sorry, over the program, over the degree, and not just course by course, where you have a, a, any number of different approaches? Yeah, and, and you know, the, there's two examples I can think of, one I know less about, but the University of Otago, it's O-T-A-G-O in New Zealand, I think, I've heard David Carlos, who's from the University of Hong Kong, I think, who's, he's a leader in this area, right? you know, peer review feedback. He mentioned them as being the only program he's ever heard of with a program-wide sort of peer review process. And it's around, I think, being in the like the role as a student researcher, right? Moving towards becoming a researcher in the area of science. So that's the only one I've heard of. And then I know the University of Strathclyde, if you go to their website and look around for peer review and feedback, you see quite a bit. And it feels like they've got a culture of feedback there. And I believe that's where David Nickel, who's another one of those names, right, uh, was a professor for quite a while. And now I think he's moved on. Um, maybe he's semi-retired. 
But you know, I remember you talked about school. I remember being in school. I went to school later, to graduate school later, a little bit later in life. And it was probably still 20 years ago. But I remember specifically, like, I was in this field, right? This is instructional design, ed tech. It was, a pretty, it was a good regional, large public university, University of Washington, Seattle area. And even then, we weren't, we didn't have a lot of great feedback. I still remember an instructor, he was from Berkeley, he's on the young side, giving me this really great feedback, but it was on a final piece of work, right? Mm. But I still remember opening it and saying, wow, he's, he's asked me all these questions. He's told me what I've done well and why. I mean, I, you don't see this. I didn't see it before. It's, it's, it's too rare. There's this idea of that it takes time. And also, if we're talking about those maybe more traditional teachers, the learning curve and the resources needed to go into finding out about the research, the theories about why feedback is useful in the first place. I think, yeah, with the limited time available, yeah. teachers just want to do what they know has worked for them. And I was thinking about, yeah, universal principles and how to make more time for feedback. And I think in the context of master's degrees and, and higher, higher education, can you trust students a bit more to give each other feedback, seeing as they already have a bit of domain knowledge? Is that right? I think, well, what I've seen at, um, at Brandeis in the RAB school, where they have students who are average age is 33, and they're in the workplace, and they have some content knowledge, but also they're, they're sort of more mature. They, they can get the value of the process better. Um, I think because of their age, um, because they've had the work experience probably with, with they've seen good and bad feedback processes themselves, even you know, if they haven't thought about it. So yeah, it's definitely a, a factor. But I still believe like now that we're in the library, I thought, wow, we could help students just be, be more proactive around the feedback that they are getting or use office hours in a way that they can seek feedback better, right? Be, be a better seeker of feedback. I mean, all of that might change the culture over time. And even though this takes time, I think that schools, you know, universities need to have sort of communities of practice where, you know, we're not going to these formal events to learn everything and having to have all the theory background. Things can be done in a more streamlined way, right? I think we're, we're going to get better at this. Absolutely. And when you talk about changing the culture, I mean, it's it started unconsciously, but now it's becoming more of a palpable thing for me that I do want to see more of a feedback culture as a general thing in academia, in institutional pedagogy, that it's not just about the content, the skills, the performance, the, the constructive alignment, the outcomes. It's about the, the process, the growth and yeah, your self-reflection. I've seen this in particular with uh, a university in the Netherlands who have something that they're pioneering, it seems, called design-based education. Mm. Every step of the way in group projects. Um, and it doesn't seem like too much, like we talked about earlier. It's not overburdening, but there are so many more ways in which feedback between students, uh, students self-reflecting, the teacher to the student, where that feedback is being processed. And it might not be a feedback uh, feedback specifically on work or skills again, but um, yeah, on the general process, what do you think you need to do next? How is it going? Um, yeah, and I think when we talk about reflection, I know sometimes reflective exercises feel like hoops to jump through for students, mm -hmm. but I think we're not, we're, I'm talking about, we're talking about reflection now, we're talking about some of the processing, like for example, even when that instructor 20 years ago gave me questions and feedback, and I didn't have an update to do. I didn't have another draft. I still thought about the questions and what the answers would be. I was really happy, and it was, it was just like so rare to see that that 
I still remember it, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was really nice to see uh, a community of practice emerging where yeah, feedback becomes more of a mainstream, more of a, a central component rather and than be- something that's latched onto some course. Yeah, and I became interested in it because it just seems so central to learning, right? I mean, we get to some kind of confused point or some cognitive dissonance that's kind of the center of an opening to learn. And then we get some feedback about our performance or our thinking. And to me, without feedback on this formative work, I don't know that I would call it teaching, frankly speaking, you know? Indeed. So whatever the challenge is, we, we need to take it on, you know? Absolutely. I, I've got, uh, I've been noting down some of the names you've told me, and I think I've got a heap of research to do. Oh, yeah, no, sorry. I mean, I've been, I've been thinking about this for five or six years, and I, I get, you know, sometimes I go down a rabbit hole. Maybe it's the inclination of people who get into the field, but sort of like once you know enough about something, you, you sort of want to know as much as you can and keep up with it, because I've really seen the impact of understanding this on some of the work I've done, just on meeting with faculty, being able to, you know, bring things in as can be done, practically speaking for them doing professional development. You know, I have a whole week and a full week online course that's just about feedback. Um, and it doesn't just, just focus that week, but we do some real practice that week. And then following that in the other weeks around different content areas, we continue to do the feedback around that content. They give each other feedback. So they practice what they learn in that week. So uh, I probably wouldn't have done 25% of the course on feedback um, five years ago, you know, if I created that course. Yeah, I'm thinking more about now, how course-specific, domain-specific feedback, rubrics, uh, protocols, processes can be applied. Because obviously at Feedback Fruits, we're trying to work with instructors from every imaginable domain in higher education about, you know, what is the optimal feedback protocol for your course? Are you talking about uh, self-reflection, a peer review, a a group review? And there is no one catch-all. There is no one-size-fits-all. Right, right. Yeah, I was uh, saying about the different areas of this. I was trying to, there's some research out there by some people that are looking into this. But yeah, I think it takes, it takes more than one course. And if, if it does work in a course, it has to be something that's the right grain size, I guess, and fits that faculty. Or um, they have to be really good at it, you know. Because <laughs> I've seen faculty work on this for years. And that's why initially I saw faculty getting together, because they were doing it because they were in fields like drama where it was used anyway, or they were in fields with writing was important or education. And they, so they knew it was important, but they weren't being successful on their own. So they got together, right? And I happened to be the person who was already thinking about it. And I was the person doing all the research. So I would come with like, here's what the Mm -hmm. recent research says. Here's how we can, you know, integrate it into what you're doing practically in your different courses. Um, so I just, and, and they were people who really thought a lot about this and wanted to get better and they were challenged, right, to do it. So I, I don't think it's an easy lift, um, to move forward on your own like that. And so many instructors, they're isolated when it comes to teaching. And sometimes they're embarrassed to talk about that they aren't, you know, they could get better at what they do. Right. And, well, that's and others another aren't. thing, isn't it? Um, the, the path of learning is, um, one full of mistakes and acknowledging those areas of weakness. I'm way too um, new in this world to be talking about how trends and uh, eras have changed in terms of societal and cultural norms, but I do feel, at least where I'm living, I don't want to generalize, but it, 
it becomes more normal to talk about yourself, to talk about your feelings, to talk about your personal journeys and growth and development. Yeah. And I think that's also about feedback, isn't it? Uh, feedback to oneself, growth as a process that you can share with people. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, what I've noticed over the last, I don't know, two to five years is this research on feedback and peer review, it just seems to be exploding. It's just mm -hmm. really growing quickly. And it's nice. It's nice to see, like, there seems to be a community that's international now where I know this is a researcher named Naomi Winstone from the UK working with David Carlos from Hong Kong and they're starting to work with the people from Australia who have been you know a bunch of leaders there and it's it's nice to see it coming together and growing and I'm hoping it's going to have an increased impact you know in higher ed again I don't know what the contents of teacher training and faculty development courses are but I would like to imagine that feedback is now going to take an even bigger role as something that everyone everywhere can do not necessarily should do in every possible course domain cons um, right. setting but that it is a fundamental of pedagogy not just this transmitting this unilateral flow of knowledge from one to the other but that it's a transaction and that we all need to be aware conscious of where we are where we're going what's going wrong and what's going right yeah, and while there's something else worth talking about, um, people like, um, I think it's David Nickel and some others in Australia, they're talking about other ways to get feedback that might not involve, you know, this sort of ideal dialogic sort of structure, right, or getting feedback from an individual. Things like looking at exemplars, right, that have been carefully chosen, pieces of work, maybe pieces of work that have been... Um, sort of they work in sort of graded structure where the uh, they get more complicated so th for example and mm -hmm. maybe this would even work with a set of tools like yourself but i've seen others where if you set let's say a self-paced series of exemplars where students can practice you know evaluating that work and getting feedback about their evaluation they can almost be trained uh, in a self-paced individual way um, that's not the answer to everything, right? But it's it's something I haven't seen and talked about very much where, you know, you just need to compare your work and your thinking to other work. That's the essential. Exactly. You actually don't need a human being. You could use learning analytics and artificial intelligence. It's not it's not ideal, but I'm just saying it's a possibility, right? No, well, we seem to be moving more towards AI and education. These will definitely be topics in future yeah. episodes. So, uh, yeah. I mean, we I'm need thinking... all the help we can get, right? So it's not like Absolutely. we shouldn't use all the tools and, and, and we shouldn't just throw people into these s systems. We could also have dialogue and peer review and, you know, all of it, right? Yeah. I think the thing would be that all areas of, a, of an activity, of a learning activity, which can be automated, which can be assisted by AI, the basic, the structural components, let's aim for that. And then let's leave the higher order functions, yes. those executive processes for the teacher, those things that need the human touch. And the social emotional pieces, right? Mm. Because I know a big part of the protocol that we created at uh, Leslie University with the instructors was setting the environment, right? Making it a, a comfortable place to be able to be open and trustful. And if you don't have that, the rest of the process is not going to work, peer review. And that's uh, so there's a lot of work feedback, around that. That uh, yeah. you make the other person, or you're operating in an environment, a, a safe space, a secure learning environment, where you know that, that the feedback that you're giving and receiving isn't meant to be hurtful. It's not meant to uh, be a character assassination, but it's about the work, and it's aiming towards improving. Right. And again, I think that's something that 
that's maybe especially younger students are a little bit afraid of or unsure about, especially sure. when it's coming from their peers and not from the teacher. Because however we want to talk about the teacher as a coach or expert, there is still instilled in us the idea that the teacher is the person who knows best. Their feedback is the most valuable. Yeah. And so you can count on them as opposed to if you're receiving feedback from a peer the same age as you, you know, fresh out of high school, 18, 20. What do they know about the subject? How, who are they to tell you uh, how? That is are? right. That's one of the challenges of whether they know enough about the content to actually give feedback. And then there's just the, like that skill of how the language around giving feedback well, right, in that uh, sort of way that doesn't sound hurtful, but also uh, is critical, right, and gets at the points you want to make. Um, and I've, I've been in someone's class, actually a physical class, which was a, a sort of a screenwriting class, right? Now the students already have, I think, through other classes, that idea that critique's important, but I was kind of blown away at how good they were at giving feedback verbally in a class, in a whole class environment. And so I, I, people can get really good at this, but at first it's, it's not going to be great, the dialogic piece. And that's why I think sometimes the practice alone or the anonymous peer review within software can be a good first step to learn the process and some of the language first, you know, without having that social emotional layer that is stressful. John, it was a real pleasure to talk to you and thank you for opening my eyes to the wider field of instructional design. I started out thinking that this was just something done in schools and the like, but now I'm seeing that its use is ubiquitous and is raising the questions of domain-specific learning and development processes even more for me. What are the overlaps between how a soldier and how a student learns? Between a business school teacher and a corporate account manager? Or an art student and a computer science student? Learning doesn't start or stop at school, it's happening in every institution and outside of them too. Thinking about the learning experience at every different level and location is really giving me good brain food to ponder for the coming weeks. And funnily enough, the UDL podcast John mentioned at the start of our chat turned out to be another fruitful avenue for research. I actually managed to get a hold of Lillian Nave, host of the Think UDL podcast, and we've already had a great session talking about that framework, as well as some of the quirks and changing environments of remote learning and digital communication. I can't wait to share that with you next time, so make sure you don't miss our next episode. It's been a huge privilege to spend time with these great minds, and who knows, with the exponential acceleration of tech, innovation, and communication possibilities, just where will we be in two, five, or ten years down the line? Please join me in imagining a utopia for an inclusive, accessible paradigm of education and instructional design, and let's be transparent about the problems and the difficulties we face now, so we can be even more sure about the solutions we want to see. As always, your listenership is appreciated and your feedback more than welcome. So don't hesitate to get in touch with your comments, queries, or questions. And remember, you can find more on these topics on the Feedback Fruits website by following us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or send me a personal message at dan at feedbackfruits.com. You can also now catch this podcast on Stitcher, as well as the other platforms you know and love, especially SoundCloud, where we started up and we continue to release on first. Hope you had a fruitful time listening to the Learning Experience Lab. See you again next time. <laughs>